guys, welcome back to Conspiracy, Fears, and Mystery CFM Podcast, and I'm your host, Ralphie, and today's Sunday, it's already Sunday, Jesus, 18 December, today's 18 December, now I don't know, um, I've already done episodes all the way up to next year, up to the beginning of next year, like first week of January or like the second week, so I got episodes for three more weeks that I've done because I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing as far as, you know, uh, you know, in the future, as far as what's coming up with my wife being in the hospital and coming back to Italy and all that stuff. But today I wanted to talk about something really interesting, and that is uh, the Milgram experiment or study. I'm sorry. If you're not familiar with that, um, I'm going to let you know what it is, obviously. But I was going to do a list like I, I love doing lists. I don't know why I love lists. And I was gonna do seven really crazy psychological studies that have been done in the past and probably still keep going, but we just don't know about them. So this is not really a conspiracy. It's more of a I don't know. It's just something that I was observing. I was watching a couple of documentaries today, as I watch a lot of documentaries. And um, I was putting things together, and it, it was it's something that really, really interested me about humanity. And it is the ability to follow an authority figure. Like, since I was a kid, I always wondered why do humans, why do we, why do us humans follow authority figures? Sometimes, a lot of times, we follow authority figures that don't have the best interest or just are doing some really horrible shit, right? So I'm like, man, why why since I was a kid, I always thought this. Why do we follow him? Why 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 do people follow this guy? Now the Milgram experiment was conducted by a scientist. Um I believe it was in the 50s. And I have the article right here and I'm going to read it, not that one, but Okay, the Milgram experiment. And this uh, particular article was is, I got it off of simplypsychology.org forward slash Milgram. And it was written by Saul McLeod. And if you're watching this on Spotify, like a lot of the videos or a lot of the podcasts that I put out, some of them are in uh, video. And you can see which ones are in video, but on Spotify, you can see the video everywhere else that you're listening to this podcast. It's just audio, but it's fine either way, however you choose. But anyway, so this particular um, study was done uh, in 1963, in, in the 60s, um, at a university. And the thing was... Um, I, it really, it really got, it really caught my attention. Not just because, wow, you know, you know, it's a weird study, but not weird. It actually made a lot of sense. But it's like, wow. But it was on that list, and I saw it. And I remember hearing about it a while back. I saw a YouTube video on it a while back too, and then I revisited it today. And, and as I was watching these other documentaries, I saw one about hip hop, um, the hip hop culture, and the style. It was more about the, like the dress, um, you know, the 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 whole. The fashion of 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 hip hop from when it started all the way to the end, and it was something I think it was Nas that said it, yeah, because he was the executive producer. And Nas, by the way, is like my favorite rapper, but he's always been my favorite rapper. Um, and he said it, and I was putting things together, and then I saw another documentary which I haven't finished yet, and I'm gonna talk a little bit on that because it has to do with this with this Milgram study. And it was called Don't Pick Up the Phone. If you haven't seen it, I suggest you go check it out. I'm on the last episode of it. It's in, it's it's cra it's crazy. It's crazy. And I'm going to talk about what it is and why this has to do with everything and why even the, the hip-hop one has to do with everything just because of something that Nas said. Just one line, right? So let's go ahead and look at the Milgram Shock Experiment. So one of the most famous studies of obedience in psychology was carried out by Stanley Milgram, a psychologist at Yale University. He conducted an experiment focusing on the conflict between obedience to authority and personal conscience. Milgram 
1963, examined justifications for acts of genocide offered by those accused at the World War II Nuremberg War Criminal Trials. So he was he was he was looking to see why people followed Hitler and and his Nazi well why people followed Hitler because even his Nazi movement why did they follow him you know why why did why why did did these people think okay I'm gonna just I'm gonna do what what he says when I can imagine that all these people. Like not everyone was down with this. Like not everyone's like yeah. And you can see it today with the war, with the whole thing with the you know Russia and the Ukraine thing. How some of the Russian soldiers, at least that's what they are telling us on the news, are like, nah, I don't want to do this, and they're kind of backing out just because they're like, yo, you know, we don't want to be doing this. I don't, I don't know how true that is, but anyway, so. Their defense was based on obedience, that they were just following orders from their superiors. The experiments began on July 1961, a year after the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Milgram devised the experiment to answer the question, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? Could we call them all accomplices? And... This was a quote from Milgram himself in 1974. Milgram wanted to investigate whether Germans were particularly obedient to authority figures as this was a common explanation for the Nazi killings in World War II. Milgram selected participants for his experiment by newspaper, advertising for male participants to take part in a study of learning at the Yale University. The procedure was that the participants were paired with another person and they drew lots to find out who would be the learner and who would be the teacher. The draw was fixed so that the participant was always the teacher and the learner was one of Milgram's confederates uh, pretending to be a, a real participant. So he had like actors or whatever. The learner a confederate called Mr. Wallace was taken into a room and had electrodes attached to his arms. And the teacher and researcher went into a room next door that contained an electric shock generator and a row of switches marked from 15 volts, which is a slight shock, to 375 volts, which is a dangerous shock, to 450 volts, which is lethal. Now, the aim of the experiment was um, he was interested in researching how far people would go in obeying in instruction if it involved harming another person. Stanley Milgram was interested in how easily ordinary people could be influenced into com uh, committing atrocities, for example, Germans in World War II. Now, the way this worked out was Volunteers were recruited for a controlled experiment investigating learning, i.e. ethics and deception. Participants were 40 males aged between 20 and 50 whose job ranged from unskilled to professional from the New Haven era. They were paid $4.50 just for turning up, just for showing up, you were $4.50, which back then was some money, I guess. you know. Now it would be like 100 bucks or 150 bucks, whatever. At the beginning of the experiment, they were introduced to another participant who was a confederate of the experiment, Milgram. They drew straws to determine their roles, learner or teacher. Although it was fixed and the confederate was always the learner, there was also an experimenter dressed in a gray lab coat. Keep that in mind, dressed in a gray lab coat, played by an actor, which was not Milgram, somebody else. Two rooms in the Yale Interaction Laboratory were used, one for the learner with an electric chair and another for the teacher and experimenter with an electric shock generator. The learner, uh, Mr. Wallace, was strapped to a chair with electrodes. After he, after he has learned a list of word, of word pairs, given him to learn, the teacher tests him by naming a word and asking the learner to recall its partner word. Pair from a list of four possible choices. 
The teacher is told to administer an electric shock every time the learner makes a mistake, increasing the level of shock each time. There were 30 switches on the shock generator marked from 15 volts to 450. The learner gave mainly wrong answers on purpose. These were the actors. So on purpose, they gave him the wrong answers. And for each of these, the teacher would give him an electric shock. When the teacher refused to administer a shock, the experimenter was to give a series of orders, prods, to ensure they continue. They were, there were four prods. And if one was not obeyed, then the experimenter, which was Mr. Williams, read out the next prod and so on. So prod one was... Please continue. Prod two, the experiment requires you to continue. So this is what he was saying to the people who who had volunteered to be like, or who were the quote unquote uh, t- the the teachers, the ones who were asking the the questions, the unsuspecting victims. These are the people who he was actually testing, who he who he was doing the experiment on. The people that were in the electric chair weren't really getting electrocuted. They were just screaming or whatever and acting like they were getting electrocuted every time they said the the wrong answers, which they were saying on purpose. Now, prod three, it is absolutely essential that you continue. Prod four, you have no other choice but to continue. So this, this is what the person in the lab coat was telling the people who were part of the experiment, who were the real, you could say, guinea pigs of the experiments. So the results were that 65%, that's two-thirds of the participants, i.e. the teachers, continued to the highest level of 450 watts, uh, volts. Sorry, 65% is a lot. That's, that's a lot. All the participants continued to 300 volts. All the other participants to 300 volts. Now, the fact that they continued to even 300 volts was... Still, even even though they didn't go to the 450, 300 volts, the fact that they went that high was a lot. Now, Milgram did more than one experiment. He carried out 18 variations of this study. All he did was alter the situation to see how this uh, affected obedience. In the conclusion of the experiment, the individual explanation for the behavior of the participants would be that it was something about them as people that caused them to obey. But a more realistic explanation is that the situation they were in influenced them and caused them to behave in the way that they did. Some of the aspects of the situation that may have influenced their behavior include the formality of of the location the behavior of the experimenter and the fact that it was an experiment for which they had volunteered and been paid. So there was different uh, variables there of why they did it. But either way, it's very interesting to see that. Ordinary people are likely to follow orders given by an authority figure, even to the extent of killing an innocent human being. Obedience to authority is ingrained in us all from the way we are brought up. That's something that I've always question i've always said and that's something that made me that made me talk about this people tend to obey orders from other people if they recognize their authority as morally right and or legally based this response to legitimate authority is learned in a variety of situations for example in the family in school and in the workplace milgram summed up the article the perils of obedience writing the legal and uh, philosophic aspects of obedience are of enormous import, import, but they are very li- But they say very little about how most people behave in concrete situations. I set up a simple experiment at Yale University to test how much pain an ordinary citizen would inflict on another person simply because he was ordered to by an experimental scientist. He wasn't even a real scientist. Not 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 um not uh not what's his name? Milgram, but I'm talking about the guy in the lab coat. Stark authority was pitted against the subjects, the participants, strongest moral imperatives against hurting others. And with the subjects ears ringing with the screams of the victim's authority, one more often than not. 
authority one more often than the screams of the victims, okay? The extreme willingness of adults to go to almost any lengths of the, on the command of an authority constitutes the chief finding of the study and the fact most urgently demanding explanations. So, Mergum explained the behavior of his participants by suggesting that people who have states of behavior when they are in a social uh, people have two states. I'm sorry. People have two states of behavior when they are in a social situation. The autonomous state is people direct their own actions and they take responsibility for the results of those actions. And the agentic state, people allow others to direct their actions and then pass off the responsibility for the consequences to the person giving the orders. In other words, they act as agents for the, for the other person's will. The agentic state is one I'm going to hit on right now with this other, with the David Stewart case, with the don't answer the phone thing that I'm going to talk about right now. Milgram suggested two things must be in place for a person to enter the agentic state. The person giving the orders is perceived as being qualified to direct other people's behavior. That is, they are seen as legitimate. The person being ordered about is able to believe that the Authority will accept responsibility for what happens. Agency theory says that people will obey an authority when they believe that the authority will take responsibility for consequences of their actions. This is supported by some aspects of Milgram's evidence. For example, when participants were reminded that they had responsibility for their own actions, almost none of them were prepared to obey. In contrast, many participants who were refusing to go on did so if the experimenter said that he would take responsibility. I want you, I want you, oh man, this is crazy. Milgram experiment variations. The Milgram experiment was carried out many times whereby Milgram varied the basic procedure. By doing this, Milgram could identify which factors um, affected obedience. Obedience was measured by how many participants shocked to the maximum 450 volt level. In total, 636 participants have been tested in 18 different variation studies. So, in the original baseline study, the experimenter wore a gray lab coat as a symbol of his authority. A kind of like, like a uniform, like a doctor or a scientist, right? Milgram carried out a variation in which the experimenter was called away because of a phone call right at the start of the procedure. The role of the experimenter was then taken over by an ordinary member of the public, a, a confederate, a, another actor, in everyday clothes rather than a lab coat. The obedience level dropped to 20%. So when the guy in the lab coat left, right, then and they put in the other person who didn't have the lab coat was just a regular person the obedience level dropped to 20% meaning people didn't want to listen to that guy they, you know it it dropped a lot that they're like well we're well, not nah, you're not you know you're not the doctor or whatever I, I don't know you whatever for whatever he didn't have the lab coat on now that's very important also cuz going on to my talking point here my talking points after this the change of location the experiment was moved to set to a set of rundown offices rather than the impressive Yale University. Obedience dropped to 47.5%. This suggests that the status of location affects obedience. I want you to think about that. When part, the, um, the two-teacher condition. When participants could instruct an assistant, a, another confederate, to press the switches... 92.5 shock to the maximum 450 volts. When there is less personal responsibility, obedience increases. This relates to Milgram's agency theory. The touch proximity condition. The teacher had to force the learner's hand down into a shock plate when they refused to participate after 150 volts. Obedience fell to 30%. So the, the teacher had to force the learners the learner's hand down oh into a okay into a shock plate <laughs> when they refuse to participate wow the participant is no longer buffered protected from seeing the 
consequences of their actions. So when they could see the consequences of their actions, then obedience fell down a lot. But notice how it only fell to 30%. Um, and just with the uh, with the uniform, it fell down to 20 So because they didn't see somebody wearing a certain garb, they didn't. It, it fell down less than when they actually um, knew that or thought that they were going to have actions for, for their, I mean, uh, consequences for their actions. Social support condition. Two other participants, Confederates, were also teachers but refused to obey. Confederate 1 stopped at 150 volts and Confederate 2 stopped at 210. The presence of others who are seen to disobey the authority figure reduces the level of obedience to 10%. So some follow the follow the leader type stuff, right? So if you see someone not doing it, you're like, you know what? He's not doing it. I'm not doing it. We see that every day in life. We see it as kids. One kid doesn't listen in class, then the other kids don't want to listen, and so on and so forth. Absent experimenter condition. It is easier to resist the orders from an authority figure if they are not close by. When the experimenter instructed and prompted the teacher by telephone from another room, obedience fell to 20.5%. Many participants cheated and missed out shocks or gave less voltage than ordered to by the experimenter. The proximity of authority figure affects obedience. Now, that that shows you right there when the authority figure wasn't there, the people kind of cheated and, you know, didn't want to really shock the person. So if the, if the instructor said, or the, the person in the lab coat said, okay, give them 250 volt, uh, volts or whatever, they'd give them a hundred, right? Because he wasn't there watching them. Now to put it off, to, to, to go on to the, onto what he was trying to see was why people follow these Nazis or why the Nazis, you know, all the people that followed Hitler. Well, you had, you have a chain of command. We have chains of command. That person is following orders from this person, this person, this person, this person, until it gets to the highest person. We're all following one person's orders. And that person's probably listening to somebody. Well, we can get into a whole other thing about that. That happens here. That's still happening. We see it every day when we go to work. That person is making sure you do your work because that person is watching that person. You know, somebody's always watching somebody. Critical evaluation. So the Milgram studies were conducted in laboratory type conditions. And we must ask if this tells us much about real life situations. We obey in a variety of real life situations that are far more subtle than instructions to give people electric shocks. It would be interesting to see what factors operate in everyday obedience. The sort of uh, situation Milgram investigated would be more suited for a military context. Orn and Holland accused Milgram's study of lacking experimental realism, i.e. participants might not have believed the experimental setup they found themselves in and knew the learner wasn't receiving electric shocks. I saw some of the videos, and you could watch the videos on on YouTube. Just put in uh, Milgram experiments, and a, a lot of those people were like really like the people who were doing, who were giving the the shocks. You could see that they didn't want to, and they kept looking back. And the person in the lab coat would tell them, "No, you gotta do it, whatever." And you could see in their face, like, "Damn, I don't want to do this." You know, it's more truthful to say that only half of the people who undertook the experiment fully believed it was real. And of those two-thirds, disobey the experimenter. So two-thirds of the ones who they said uh, believed it was real. I don't think a lot of people knew it was fake, that it was, uh, you know, that it was fake. Um, I don't think a lot of people knew it was fake. Um, <laughs> Milgram, Milgram's sample was biased. The participants in Milgram's study were all male. Do the finding? Do do the findings? transferred to females well i okay i didn't know that part see he only did males i didn't know that he didn't do females milgram study cannot be seen as representative of the american population as his sample was self-selected this is because they became participants only by electing to respond to a newspaper advertisement selecting themselves 
They may also have a typical volunteer personality. Not all the newspaper readers responded, so perhaps it takes this personality type to do so. Yet a total of 636 participants were tested in 18 separate experiments across the New Haven area, which was seen as being reasonably uh, representative, representative of a typical American town. Milgram's findings have been replicated in a variety of cultures and most led to the same conclusion as Milgram's original study and in some cases see higher obedience rates. However, Smith and Bond point out that with the exception of Jordan, the majority of these studies have been conducted in industrialized Western cultures and we should be cautious before we conclude that a universal trait of social behavior has been identified. I've always questioned that. Ethical issues. You had, uh, now they, they talk about the ethical issues of it, but deception. The participants actually believed that they were shocking a real person and were unaware the learner was a confederate of Milgram's. However, Milgram argued that illusion is used when necessary, illusion is used when necessary in order to set the stage for the revelation of certain difficult to get as truths. Milgram also interviewed participants afterward to find out the effect of the deception. Apparently, 83.7 said that they were glad to be in the experiment, and 1.3% said that they wished they had not been involved. Protection of participants. Participants were exposed to extremely stressful situations that may have the potential to cause psychological harm. Many of the participants were visibly distressed. Signs of tension, including trembling, sweating, stuttering, laughing, uh, laughing nervously, biting lips, and digging fingernails into palm of hands. These participants had uncontrollable seizures. Oh, I'm sorry, three participants had uncontrollable seizures, and many pleaded to be allowed to stop the experiment. Milgram described a businessman reduced to a twitching, stuttering wreck. In his defense, Milgram argued that these effects were only short-term. Once the participants were debriefed and could see the Confederate was okay, the stress levels decreased. Milgram also interviewed the participants one year after the event and concluded that most were happy and that that most were happy that they had taken part. However, Milgram did debrief the participants fully after the experiment and also followed up a period of time to ensure that they came that they came to no harm. Uh, Milgram debriefed all his participants straight after the experiment and disclosed the true nature of the experiment. Participants were assured that their behavior was common and Milgram also followed the sample the sample up a year later and found that there were no signs of any long-term psychological harm. In fact, the majority of the participants, 83.7%, said that they were pleased that they had participated. Now, the right to withdrawal. The BPS states the researchers should make it plain in participants that they are free to withdraw at any time, regardless of payment. Did Milgram give participants an opportunity to withdraw? The experimenter gave four verbal prods, which mostly discouraged withdrawal from the experiment. One was, please continue. The other one was, the experiment requires you to continue. The third was, it is absolutely essential that you continue. And the fourth was, you have no other choice. You must go on. Milgram argued that they are justified as the study was about obedience. So orders was necessary. Obviously, yeah, I, I do agree. Milgram pointed out that although the right to withdraw was made partially difficult, it was possible as 35% of participants had chosen to withdraw. Now that 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 says a that says a lot right there. That some chose to withdraw. Now the they have Milgram audio clips. Um and um I, I'm not gonna play the audio clips here. Let me see if I can. I don't think I can, but nah. So this is gonna bring me to this to some of the things I noticed. Now, in this experiment, he wanted to see how people or how much people would follow orders. Now, back to the way they dressed, right? So, the way that we dress, style, fashion, plays a big part in 
who we obey, who we listen to and everything. You look at all the members of Congress, they're wearing suits, you know, nice suits, whatever, um, dress really well. So we tend to believe them. You, Whenever you see a person in a suit, if he's talking to you about something, you think this guy's a professional. He knows what he's talking about. That I'm... That and that's just something we're conditioned to to see, right? Subconsciously, you know, you're thinking, okay, this guy's a professional. Some salesman in a nice suit comes in, you know, he might sell you something, you know, like okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. A doctor, you know, he could tell you to take a thousand pills, and you'll be like, oh, okay. Most of us will take the pills. Um, it happened with COVID. You had they put Dr. Fauci up on a stage, right? Um, and they, they, they had his, um, you know, he was always in a suit and they had him in a, you know, they had his, uh, his titles are always, uh, oh, the doctor and this, a lot of times you may, you may have not, you may have not noticed it, but the news would play, oh, he's got this degree. He's got this. He went to school. He's been doing this for how many years? So naturally we're like, oh man, this guy knows what he's talking about. You know, he knows what he's talking about. He's, he's the man. We listen to everything that scientists say. We don't verify anything. We just listen to what they say. We 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 trust them. NASA, they got their big thing. They got the, and so it's a status thing, and that's what takes me to this um way uh this documentary I saw about hip hop. How does this relate to this? Because Nas said he I think it was Nas who said because he uh he was the executive producer. Um, he was saying that the the fashion. You know, even though a lot of people lived in houses where there's, you know, it was roach infested in the projects or whatever, you know, whatever back in the day, their clothes were fresh. And I remember because I, cause I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in New York City, okay? I, I grew up in Queens, you know, going to Manhattan, the Bronx and all that stuff back in the 80s, 90s. And, you know, I, I had a little apartment. I remember the asbestos was falling out, whatever, but I had nice clothes. My clothes were nice. I mean, I was wearing brand, you know, name brand stuff. I had a job, whatever, but I was wearing, you know, name brand stuff. You know, um, when I get a deal, I'd get it, but it was like a status thing. I wanted you to see me as, you know, oh, you know, people would take you more seriously. If you wear the messed up sneakers, you know, the the cheap sneakers, the, you know, the cheap clothes, nobody wants to hang with you. It happens when we're kids everywhere, you know? Um the captain of the football team and everything, you know, like the football guys in the high school always wear their, you know, their, uh, you know, their football jackets. So people know and they have this status, you know, people tend to listen to them. If they say, hey, we're having a party over here, you're going to go to that party most likely nine times out of ten. You know what I mean? You know, that's how it was. Or th that's how it is. It's a status symbol. The way so we tend to listen, we, we listen to, uh, you know, all, all these celebrities you know, and if a celebrity wears something, most likely it's going to be in style. Everybody else is going to start wearing it because it's a status symbol, you know. Kings and queens back in, you know, back in the day, um, not not even back in the day, even still now, presidents, kings, queens, whatever, um, they were, they were very, they were very, um, um, extravagant with their jewelry and their and their head garbs and all that stuff that's how you knew that was the leader you know that's the authority that's the guy we listen to all that you know that's how you know you know he he's the one we listen to um we do that with police when you see a police officer as much as you know and you know we have a lot of problems with the police with you know them and and it goes both ways because now you give a person and I'm gonna use the cops as, as an example. Look, I I support the police. Um, you know, I back the blue and all that good stuff. But at the same time, a lot of these officers, you give them that uniform and that badge, and it gives them when when I was in uniform, when I was when I was a corrections officer, you know, you say, you know, oh, he hides behind the badge or the badge of power or whatever. They think like you get this sense of authority. And that that leads me to another experiment that I'm not gonna talk about now. But there's another experiment where they had two, they had they had some students. Uh, some played uh inmates, the other ones played correctional officers. That one got out of hand real quick. There's a documentary about that, but that's a whole nother episode. But you know, 
you get this sense of authority and people in the street you you're most likely going to listen to a cop you know when 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 a cop when a cop you know tells you something why do we listen to the news because we believe that they're the authority in information everything they say must be correct everything they say must be true so we listen to CNN we listen to Fox everything they say must be true if they tell me to hate this person I'm going to hate them if they tell me to like this person I'm going to like them you know um they do all the time. They they play head games with us. And it's because I think humans are, we are conditioned to, we have a tribe, all of us, everybody, every single human from every culture, we are conditioned to live in a tribal society. We conditioned in a tribal society within with a hierarchy. We're conditioned with a hierarchy. We're conditioned with God, you know, king, queen, a pope, uh, you know, a president, prime minister, or if you want to bring it down to, to the tribes, we have the tribal leader. We have, you know, we're not conditioned to be to be on our own. There's only a few amount of people, and normally those end up being leaders. There's a few, not all the time, but there's a few amount of people, like they said here, there's a certain amount of people who said, nah, I'm not doing this. There's some people that are just wired a little bit different in the animal kingdom. You call them alpha males. I'm not saying all alpha males don't follow. Uh, but most of the time you have certain people that just refuse to follow, you know, those people that are like, that don't follow the herd that don't, you know, um, and I, that's not just, I'm not saying that, and you know, when I say the word herd, I'm not saying that all Republicans are like that. Not, no, they're following someone too. They're following a herd also, just like, not to get political, but just like Democrats, they follow whatever their overlords say the Republicans do the same. They'll follow their overlords. You know what I mean? So it, we, we, we just, we just follow We we tend to follow. Now this other documentary I saw that's, that made me think of this. I said, man, this, this is, this makes a lot of sense. Don't pick up the phone. Now in this documentary, there was a gentleman. I don't want to ruin the document. I really want you to see it. This guy, for like 10 years, was making these hoax phone calls, pretending to be a cop and somebody of authority to these establishments, a lot of fast food restaurants. He, he would call the manager, right? And he would tell him, hey, one of your employees, um, uh, a blonde girl, about five foot, whatever. He he would just describe somebody who most likely worked there. Now, he did his homework. What he did was he would call them and he'd say, hey, this person, this uh, somebody came to us and uh, accused her of stealing $50 or a purse or whatever. We need you to check her. We need you to check this. We need you to check this employee to see if they have the money. Now, there was more into it. He said, oh, you could either bring them to the station or you could just, uh, you know, I can walk you through the, you know, what what to do, whatever. And it, a lot of people ended up getting assaulted, you know, not in the way that you did, but they ended up getting assaulted because uh, these managers would follow the orders of the person on the phone. And all he was doing was getting his rocks off. He would, but he sounded when they interviewed these people, when they, you know, cause a, a lot of them went to jail, whatever. These were regular managers, but regular people, none of them had any sex history or anything. Some were, were females and it was both. It was male to, to female, to young female employees. And it was female managers to male employees. Also, it was going, it was going in every direction. He was just, he was just doing that. Um, and they followed what he said. One, I mean, th there was some where I was like, why, why would, you? in my head, and if when, when you watch it, I know you're going to say the, the same thing. Why would you follow it? But they all said the, the same thing. He, like, he was really calm. He said he was a cop and he sounded like he knew what he was talking about. He sounded very legit on the phone. He sounded like, oh my God. He said, oh, we have corp we have McDonald's, because in one of them, it was a McDonald's. He was like, oh, we have McDonald's, you know, uh, corporate on the phone. We also, um, I'm detective whatever. We also have the person who said that the thing was stolen. He's like, I can walk you through to what to do. And what he would do is, listen to how, how this guy, this guy was, this guy did his homework. Like, he, he, he was 
This was some crazy, crazy stuff. You have to watch the documentary. But he targeted areas. It was small towns. He 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 never did a big city. He, he you know he didn't call a McDonald's in New York City because he knew that wouldn't work. You have there's too many people. The the people think a little different there. He, you know he didn't call Los Angeles. You know it's just a it's it's a different mentality. What he did was he called small towns, these real small towns that kind of you know conservative towns and and I don't mean conservative just like in the political way, but you know they have their you know, they're religious. So, you know, a town that's religious is used to following, you know, the, these towns where crimes barely happen, where people pretty much obey the law all the time. They're, they're, you know, they have like a couple of sheriffs, maybe, you know, deputies, you know, things like that. The You know, these small towns that where people tend to really listen and, you know, real conservative type people. And that's who we were. And those people would listen. They were like, you know, he'd be like, oh, you have to take her clothes. You have to take her pants off, check that she doesn't have any. And then, I mean, it w- it went, it got really out of hand. I, I couldn't believe it. I was, because I'm from a city and I just think, I question everything, man. And I was just, I was looking at myself like, I would not, if, if somebody called me, cop called me and I was a manager and they told me to check my employee, I'm just not going to do it. I'm just not going to do it. Bottom line, you know, we all fall for we all fall into we subconsciously. I don't care how much we say we don't. We subconsciously always fall in one way or another for the authority figure, and not it's not always bad, obviously, but we always fall for that. Oh damn! And it's not always the way you dress. It's the minute you know that this person. For example, I'm gonna give you an example with myself. I worked in I worked in a correctional facility. In the correctional facility, um, we had a guy, uh, this uh, older Indian gentleman. Now he had he ran a food truck, the only food truck in the correctional facility, right? Now that was the only place where we could get food, especially when you're on the night shift. Everything was closed. That's the only place it, they they allowed him. He had he had contract. So they allowed him to put his little food truck. It was like a little, you know, little little food truck. He would sell like wings and burgers and fries, you know, kind of fast foodish type things, chips, drinks, whatever. And um he you know, he he'd be there till like midnight or one in the morning. So from like, you know, I don't know, two in the afternoon to midnight, whatever. I don't know what time he got there. He'd be there. And that's the only place where uh what like 150, 200 employees were able to get food, right? Now, first of all, I didn't even know he was the owner. He would have some people, he, he'd have like two other employees that worked there, uh, some white lady and like uh, another Mexican dude. And, um, and I would see him drive in bringing his products, bringing, you know, bringing, uh, not products, but, you know, the supplies. And he'd have... He was dressed normally, whatever. I didn't really, you know, I was like, okay, whatever. He owns a food truck. It's cool. But one day I sat down and talked to him. Now, I really, he was just normal to me, whatever. Well, I sat down and talked to him, and he was just talking things. And he said, um, yeah, man, you know, uh, yeah, that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to put a business out here, but you know, you gotta make, you know, thing, whatever. I wanted to open up, I wanted to buy Rachel's and, um, you know, and whatever, and put a business there and kind of fix it up. And I'm like, Rachel's, I'm like, dude, Rachel's is, Rachel's one of the biggest strip clubs in Orlando, right? Yeah. It's Rachel's is, is, is a big strip club. It's like, uh, in, in some, you know, you, <laughs> that place makes money. You know, a lot of high rollers go to Rachel's. It's like, uh, uh, um, it's like scores in, in the city, in New York City, right? So, uh, if you're not familiar with that, but anyway, so, Ra- I'm like, Rachel's? I'm like, wow, this guy's gonna buy Rachel? He owns a food truck, right? I, you know, and he's like, yeah, man, you know, I wrote the guy, I wrote, I, I was talking to the owner, I wrote him a check. For, you know, $2 million. And he was like, no, I don't want to sell it right now. Whatever. This was a couple of years ago. And I was like, 
you're writing checks for $2 million, bro? And I was like, what the hell? So I I asked him, I said, what? I was like, hey, is, it, um, is this the only place you work? And he was like, he's like, no, nah, well, I, I own this food truck, but I also have food trucks in six other in six other jails. So I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you own food. You have six other food trucks, right? And then he said, I said, uh, you know, I said, oh, I was thinking of opening a food truck because I was a while back. I was like, oh, I was thinking of opening a food truck. You know, I was going to buy a little one. It was like 15000 And I had some money saved. And I was like, damn, I should buy this. I, I'm stupid. I should have because it came with the cook. She was a great cook. And I said, how much do you, how much do one of these make? He said, oh, well, on this one here in the jail, I probably average, he's like, you average about 200, 200, 200, 250,000, you know, a year. Now that's in each food truck, 200, 250,000. And if, well, if you saw how it was laid out and how, and the whole situation, again, he was the only place where 150 to 200 employees at a time can get food. Now, you're talking about he was there for two different shifts. So that's 150, 200 employees on two different shifts. So that's 400, 300 to almost 400 employees in one jail. And our jail wasn't the biggest one. He's making 200 to 250 on that one alone. He's got six of them. He's making money on the, on all of them. So, you know, he's bringing home more than a million a year just on food trucks. God knows what other businesses he have. Now, the thing what I'm getting at is that as soon as he told me this, I saw him in a, I even addressed him in a different way. When I didn't know that he was making a million dollars or more a year, I was like, hey, man, what's going on? After he told me that, it was, hey, hey, Mr. Saeed, or Patel, I think it was something Patel. Hey, Mr. Patel, how you doing? Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, it was all, you know. And that's something subconsciously that we do. His status, even though he didn't, I just, I knew his status, so I automatically pictured him. As something, and that's just something we do as humans. Status. Status. Now, if if he dressed different, it would be even, if you know, if he was wearing like a nice suit and he came in in a nice car. But no, he had a little regular Toyota Camry, things like that. You know, he didn't, he wasn't flashy or anything. He wasn't wearing like all this ice or nothing like that. You know, but... Well, that's why we have this impression of rappers and a lot of them are broke, but we see them as these gods. Well, the kids do as, you know, when you grow up, you grow out of that, but then you find another God to look at, you know, as you grow up. Now we're looking at, now we're looking at, oh, who's the president or who's the next politician or who's this or who's that, whatever, you know, we're not, we're not, uh, you know, we always find, we have to find something to always look at, to worship. You know what I'm saying? And I don't mean, I'm not saying you're worshiping any politician. God knows nobody wants to worship these guys. But it's just, that's just human nature, man. And it's crazy how we do that. And all through, all through life, we've done that. Um, Back when religion was like the only thing you, you better not be an atheist. You better not be an atheist back in the day, way back. You better not be an atheist because you were going to get killed. Um, so you had to, you had to worship. I'm not saying don't believe in God. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, I do, you know what I mean? But I'm just saying that's just, we're broke. We, we're conditioned like that. We're born like that from the time we're born. But your parents, you know, we're not, we're not insects, you know, insects. I think insects in the animal kingdom, I think is probably not all animals, but I would say most animals are born and even the uh, a lot of mammals have alphas have alpha males they call them alpha males you know uh that you know that lead the pack you know um they, they 
insects are probably the only ones that are born and they can kill the mom and not give a damn. You know, they go do their own thing. They have a mission and that's it. They're they're individuals. <laughs> ants. Ants. Ants do what the what the you know, what the queen with the queen, uh, well, their their job is just to, you know, keep the queen making babies. That's it. You know, just keep the queen making babies. That's all it is. But as humans, man, we are like conditioned, man. In in in, in the prison, here's another example. In the prisons, right? Um in the prisons, I I worked in the prison system and in the jail system for like six years, right? Um, the inmates, I'm gonna tell you like this: the inmate, what I saw, the inmate who wore his dress where I was, it was dress blues, and then in the prison, it was orange in the in the well, orange blue. Yellow. It all depends on your status if you were a trustee or whatever. But the prisoners who dressed like who would take their uniform and like not wear it the right way, you know, for the most part, they kind of had their own style with it, even though we yell at them to put it on right. But you knew it was then because they wore it different. Those were the ones that were like most likely the leader of something. That's who everyone. So when you're in a position of power, you always want to stand out. You know what I mean? Um, we do it in the military. We give you rank so so that you know your position. You know, we we live by a hierarchy. That's how we live our lives. That's how that that's how humanity is. And it's crazy to see this, and you watch that documentary through uh Don't Answer the Phone. It, it'll blow you away to see how we don't really notice it like that because we're so, we're so caught up with life. We're so caught up with everything around us, the politics and this and work and kids got to go to school and all that, that we don't really pay attention to it, you know, but we're doing it. We, we do it all the time when, you, when you're fighting with your friend because your friend is a Republican and you're a Democrat or vice versa. That's you following orders. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, man. Think about that and go check out that documentary. Go check out that documentary. Don't answer the phone. It's really interesting. Um, Man. Anyway. <laughs> that's all I got for you guys. I got a lot. I know a lot of the episodes are kind of... They're all coming out on Friday. But I'm trying to put them out. Again, I had to record like five episodes ahead of time. On things that I wanted to share, and every and every week I'm finding something else. So this one might not go up when I said the date in the beginning, which was Sunday the 18th, but it might go up um, as a bonus episode. I might put it up as a bonus. I don't know, even though it's very long. Anyway, that's all I got for y'all, man. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow me on social media, and I'll see you on the next smoke.